I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. My name's Katie Law. I'm the Deputy Literary Editor of The Evening Standard. I'm here in the studio with Louisa Young. Louisa has written the ninth in our series of short stories, Underground, Tales of London. She's written a brilliant short story called She Deserves It. It's set on the Hammersmith and City line, and unlike most of our other stories in the series, it's a memoir, and each place denoting somewhere important to Louisa. Can you tell us why you chose the Hammersmith and City line for your short story? It was a really, really obvious choice in that I was born on the Hammersmith and City line. I've lived practically all of my life on the Hammersmith and City line. And as I looked at the stations, it just seemed like a sort of pink ribbon off which hung various occurrences, including literally my birth, my daughter's birth, my father's death, my mother's death, my education, my childhood, all kinds of things. Every station I looked at as far as King's Cross, because I'm a West London girl. But between Hammersmith and King's Cross, practically everything in my life hung off it. And there's all sorts of other things which for any Londoner just come up through the tube. On the one hand, it's um, the simple thing of where all Londoners go. Even if you hate it, you know, you use it, you have to use it. And we're all equal down there. It's like people smoking on doorsteps. You know, you'll see the, the millionaires having a fag on a doorstep alongside the chef or the kitchen assistant and on the tube you see pretty much everybody because even if you are going to be traveling around in your Lamborghini on some occasions if you actually want to get somewhere you get on the tube Mm -hmm. and so there we all are and it it just really brings home to me what London is that even you know you've got the city on the surface and then you've got the city underneath and then I think we have to go to the start of the journey in in um on the on the tube line which is Hammersmith and um, this is particularly significant um, and tell us what happened at Hammersmith what 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 significance uh, that is and tell us a little bit about the book that um, is an really a very big expansion of of this yeah um, well Hammersmith is so many things to me. I mean, it's part of all kinds of bits of my life, but I think what you're referring to there is the um, is the, the dear hospital, which is now under threat, like 
everything valuable. Um, Charing Cross Hospital, which is where my uh, very beloved late fiancé died. Uh, he'd been very ill in various ways. He was an alcoholic and... Um, in the end, after going through all sorts of... Well, I've written all about it in the book and I know that you've read it and it's not something one can sort of skip through. In fact, one of the reasons why I wrote the book was so that I wouldn't have to tell the story. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I would just interject here and say um, I have just read it. Um, it's called You Left Early and it's an astonishing uh, memoir, really, about uh, Louisa and uh, her lifelong love affair with uh, Robert Lockhart, who was a musician and an extremely talented man. And it's also a very interesting book about addiction generally, um, alcoholism, addiction, and how whatever people perhaps who think on the outside, um, the judgments people make, um, how Louisa, perhaps, I don't know if you'd agree, um, might have come at it from the outside originally but how your experience of living through loving an alcoholic it sort of changed everything and sort of tipped it all on its head yes yes I think that's absolutely true I mean Robert and I met when we were 17 so you know whether people are born addicts or not who knows very you know there are a lot of constituent parts that build up into a making a person an addict but it seems to me that, that there are a lot of excellent books written by particularly addicts in recovery and written by parents of addicts and by children of addicts. But apart from The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which was, let's face it, 200 years ago, I've never read a good book by somebody who is in love with an addict. And it's a very different thing, because if you grow up under addictive parents, you grow in the shadow of that particular tree and it's part of you. But if you're somebody who has never had anything particular to do with addiction and you fall for somebody... And then they become an addict before your eyes and you don't really know what's happening. It's a very different thing. And I think, I mean, it is astonishing that every time I talk about this book, somebody in the room or somebody in the conversation will get a certain look in their eye and you think, oh, you know about this, don't you? There is so much addiction around. It is still one of the unspoken things. You know, people will carry on making jokes about it and kind of retreating from it and being ah, nervous. And... You know, nobody wants to be the Cassandra. Nobody wants to be the person to tell the English people that drink isn't always a great thing. Well, um, Robert died in 2012, mm. and um, you have also uh, composed some songs, put songs to music, yeah. and uh, I'm hoping that we <clears throat> might be able to listen to uh, part of uh, the song Perhaps You Left Early which is a brilliant track. Play the end, it's better than the beginning. All right, we'd, we'd, we'd <laughs> like to do that. Louisa Young's album, a collection of her songs called You Left Early, will be released in June at the same time as her memoir. Now we'll listen to She Deserves It, read on podcast. It's available on iTunes and your other favourite apps. Thank you very much, Louisa, for coming in. The Evening Standard and the Borough Press present Underground, Tales for London, Hammersmith and City Line, She Deserves It.
by Louisa Young. Read by Sarah Beckett. Autobiographical jewels of mine hang from that pink ribbon as it ambles across the city. Think of them as coloured light bulbs strung along frayed electric flecks over a market stall. A long twist of Chinese lanterns glowing in the dusk. Damp stained gems of coloured diamante dangling at intervals from a cheap foxed chain. A rosary of things that happened. The stations of the King's Cross to Hammersmith stretch. Think of London lying naked by the river, wearing everything that is inflicted on her. Decorated, damaged, ignited, weighted, chained, wounded, loved, undermined, traversed, surviving. Euston Square is where I was born. University College London Hospital. It was UCH then, and my brother said it stood for United Cow Houses, because I was a cow. It's where you get the train to Wigan, where my darling was from. He called UCLH the Euston Hilton. We spent so much time there, with the radiotherapy, daily, and the chemotherapy, weekly, and the insertion of the peg tube, and the nutritionists, and the pain clinic, and the surgeons and oncologists, and CPEX tests, and anaesthetists, and the removal of his jawbone, and half his tongue, and the speech therapy, and the no more eating, and no more talking, and all the things. The full-time job of love. At the first appointment, when he was rushed from one expert to another, to another, we were for a while in an oncology consulting room, with little enamelled panels on the window sills, saying, Please do not throw cigarette ends out of this window, which goes to show something. Looking out, I could see across the car park to the back of the building on Gower Street, where I was born, on a trolley in the corridor, because I was the fifth child and I came quick. When you're having radiotherapy at UCLH, you're two floors down in the basement, so the radioactivity is contained. We're under the northern end of the Tottenham Court Road by the lights, a nurse said. Through that wall, that's the platform at Warren Street Tube. Paddington is where I grew up and where my child was born. It was the central line that ran right under our house, making the strange and marvellous vibrations I could hear when I put my head underwater in the bath. It was the double-strand circle and district lines that hid behind the fake frontage in the stucco terrace of Leinster Gardens, with its blind grey windows. You can see it from Porchester Terrace on the way to primary school. Hallfield Junior Mixed, 68 languages spoken, if you climb up on the wall and look over. My sister made a beautiful swirling graffiti of the words, Our hearts are around us on that wall. You can almost see the ghost of the graffiti too. I can see it, of course. I will always see it. But Paddington is where all the strands tangle. The busy red and liquid beating heart, connected on all sides, the coming and the going. The coming of my only child, which took forever, and her father went so many times to the same cafe on Prade Street that he became a sweet joke with the proprietor and in the end had free breakfasts. And the going of my own dear dad. 
The boats in the canal outside the window of the room he died in were like a list of memories of his life. One called Arthur, like his grandson. One from Pusey, where his father had lived on the Kennison-Avon Canal he was named after. And the library boat, full of books. He was in and out of that hospital like a weatherman. Because of his dementia, one of us would spend the night on the floor. One night it was me. In the morning came the usual clattering and vicious lights, followed by, at about 6am, our core family. Seven or eight of them, led by my ghost-pale mother, gliding and crowding into the small room on a cloud of trepidation. Dad greeted them cheerfully. I rose, squinting from behind the bed. A night nurse had turned two pages in the nurse's book and rung Mum in the small hours and told her Dad was dead. But Dad was not dead. The man in the next room was dead, God rest his soul. Dad's Lazarus, we cried, and sent the youngsters for coffee, and were glad to be all together and wondered if there was a word for the opposite of disappointment, because that was the elation we were feeling. A few years later, he did die, in that same hospital. Again, I'd spent the night on his floor. What are you doing today? he'd said. Going to the library, I said. Going to write. Good, he said and I went to the tube. Hammersmith was secondary school. I did not like Miranda Brooks, because when someone asked what her father did, she said, he's an accountant, and I said, is that a turf accountant? Because that was the only kind of accountant I knew about, having read the sign on the shop front on Bishop's Bridge Road every time I went to tea with Claire from Hallfield above the Royal Oak, which was where she lived. Certainly not, she said. He's a chartered accountant. I didn't know what that was any more than I knew what a turf accountant was. But I could tell when I was being put down all right. Or being misinterpreted. Perhaps she thought I was being rude, suggesting he was a turf accountant. Perhaps she knew what a turf accountant was. But then what was wrong with being a turf accountant anyway? I just liked being clear. Also because she tried to get Susan Rosen off me, and I liked Susan Rosen very much and did not care for the whole breaking friends and possessiveness aspect of being 13 and a girl. And because when there was to be a school trip and my parents said I could go, and Susan's parents said she could go, although it would be Passover, and Miranda's parents said she couldn't go because it was Passover, and I was glad and wrote in my diary that I was glad Miranda couldn't go, and it was because of Passover. Tatty Naradnik stole my diary from my locker while we were changing for netball and wouldn't give it back, and read it out loud and told everybody I was anti-Semitic because of what I'd said about Miranda. I didn't know the word syllogism yet, and even if I had, I wouldn't have wanted to use it because I was self-conscious about my lisp. But now I didn't like Tatty either because she had slandered me by warping information from a stolen source. Then some other girls said I didn't like Tatty because I was jealous of her big bosoms and pretty face. So I said, what logic does a girl have to have here? She stole my fucking diary and misrepresented me. They looked pitying. I felt I was on a losing wicket in this place. A few years later, 
I left my school bag on the seat outside the dining hall during lunch, which gave the deputy head, notorious for the velvet-soled slippers which allowed her to pad around the place catching people out, a reason to take it away and look inside it, which was apparently permissible. She called me into her office, and it turned out that she too had read my diary. A little one, the what-are-you-doing-on-Wednesday type, not the here-is-why-I-hate-Miranda-Brooks type. She had found several weeknight engagements and also a little packet of rolling tobacco. St. Saviour's girls do not smoke, she announced. A splendid presentation of dishonesty and wishful thinking, and you go out too much during the week. I think I said, I hope I said, that this was my business and my parents, that this was not a boarding school, that she could do one. I don't remember. I just remember burning injustice. There was a shoplifting period. Go to Bieber, dimly lit, ostrich-feathered, sparkly Bieber. Steal as much as you could on the way up to the Rainbow Room, the restaurant on the top floor. Go and compare booty in the loos, and then, on the way down again, put it all back. That was the harder skill. The school called the whole year in and told us they knew who was doing it, and if they confessed of their own accord, they would not be in trouble. As if anyone would fall for that. But of course one or two went in and said, It wasn't me, but I know it was X, Y and Z. Later, Angelica Houston wrote that Barbara Hulanicki, the owner of Bieber, said she didn't mind the teenagers shoplifting, because it meant the coolest girls in London were wearing Bieber clothes, and it was great advertising. Someone had an essay to finish. If she didn't get it in, she'd be in trouble. If she was in any more trouble, her parents were taking her away and sending her to finishing school. She was in the local library, struggling with the essay, and her friend got someone's boyfriend to ring in and say there was a bomb. This was the 70s. Bomb scares and bombs were normal to us London children, because Oliver Cromwell had put different types of Christian on top of each other in Ireland in the 17th century, and the love thy neighbour bit had got lost in the ensuing historical melee. Tube stations closed, Harrods, Hyde Park. At home we'd go to the back of the kitchen away from the road and someone would say, Is it like the Blitz? And our parents would say, No. We were all filed out onto the netball courts, glad of the change of scene. She finished her essay. Her parents took her out of school anyway because they discovered she was going out with Susan Rosen's brother, and the Rosens were not rich or grand in any way, unlike this girl's family. Many years later, I met a man who had just come out of prison after serving five years for a false bomb scare. He said he hadn't done it. He was trying to rebuild his life as an ex-convict. The shame burned on behalf of those girls, that world. If you got into Oxford or Cambridge from that school, they engraved your name on the wall in gold. I wanted to do well, but I didn't want my name on their wall. Dilemma. Only not. I'd been leaving since the day I arrived. And Hammersmith is Charing Cross Hospital. Scene of the death of my darling. When they knock the hospital down and replace it with overpriced housing, all the death scenes will be floating in empty air. 
way up high where the skeins of geese fly down at dusk to the reservoirs at Barn Elms. Perhaps those empty blocks of air have already been defined and divided to be sold. Later, there'll be someone's prestigious bathroom, or someone's really not affordable lounge, or a logistical solution to a corrupt foreign bureaucrat's where-to-store-his-bribes problem, or a bankrupt property developer's death blast as the bubble holding them up contracts, expands, explodes, disappears. Ladbrook Grove was where I went to help my sister paint murals in the bays under the Westway, the new motorway across North Kensington, a place of great brutality and ugliness. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The North Kensington Amenity Trust ran a job creation scheme for unemployed youth, and it was to be part of that. She raised funds from charities, got free paint from manufacturers, rented a scaffolding tower. She wanted to make the city more beautiful and started there, covering the concrete with blue sky, stylized clouds, green hills and massive painted caryatids with rainbow outlines supporting the flyover. She was bringing beauty to a problematic place. She started doing it on her own and the youth turned up, or not, day by day to help her. It was painting by numbers. Red, white, green, yellow and blue. One, two, three, four, five. Mainly blue. I recall being up ladders, in dungarees. Frestonia was going on. Ladbroke Grove was Portobello, was freedom. I had a crush on Pete the Plumber. Waist-length red hair, bare chest, chopper bike. The stucco palaces of Elgin Crescent and Blenheim Crescent were full of squats and impoverished intellectuals. We'd climb into the communal gardens and lurch from house to house, eating everything in each other's mother's fridges. Mothers couldn't bear waste because of the war. We'd sit on the roofs and sing, Maybe the last time in harmony, in 40s tea dresses from the market and Doc Martins. I was doing my A-levels that year. She stopped doing the murals when she got pregnant. Later, the bays were filled in. The murals remain, somewhere behind the gym and the shopping arcade. I still dream of my sister's clouds, the blue and white. St Pancras. Here's old St Pancras Church, with the high graveyard behind its blackened wall. One of my first jobs was going round London looking at old churches to update the book about them my parents wrote in the 50s. If you were a dentist on Harley Street, this was where the tomb raiders would get the nice new teeth you needed for your wealthy clients. Other parts also available. And in the 1860s, when the Midland Railway was built, north of Euston Road because the aristocratic owners of everything further south weren't having any of this industrial stuff going on on their land, thank you. It was the bodies of old St Pancras 
that had to be shifted, and it was the job of architect's young assistant Thomas Hardy, future novelist and poet, to dismantle those tombs and move those corpses. There stands still an ash tree bearing his name, surrounded and wedged by the mossy, propped-up gravestones of the dead who he disappeared. And here's the phenomenal hotel at St Pancras, now righteously called the Renaissance. Originally, it only had about four bathrooms to its hundreds of bedrooms. It was one of the last to be built for pitchers and ewers and servants, the original hot and cold running water. When the whole massive Victorian caboodle, station and hotel was to be demolished in the 60s, among those who came to its rescue was my dad, working then as a junior minister in the Ministry of Housing and Local Government, who quietly, conscientiously and repeatedly mislaid and bungled the planning applications for demolition, until that decade's mania for destruction passed. I look up at it and think, Survivor. Shepherd's Bush Market is where I live. Up till a few years ago, it was called just Shepherd's Bush, the same as the other station four blocks along, which is completely separate and serves two other lines. I was walking up there recently on my way to the British Library where I go to write, the heels of my boots clacking along briskly. Feeling good. Outside one of the newsagents, my ankle turned briefly. I recovered it in the same movement, not a problem. I continued along. I was going to be writing this, Hammersmith and City, the pinky mauve ribbon, Pantone 197, round my city's body, from which my scenes hang. After a few moments, I noticed a little voice right behind my shoulder singing very quietly. I was pleased. I often sing under my breath. My friends have warned me about it. The word eccentric has been used. But I'm a songwriter. I sing melodies into my phone late at night as I stride home. This was not a beautiful melody, though. It was a whiny, dirgy, little three-note tune on a falling note. Borderline. It went. She fell. She deserved it. She fell, she deserved it, she fell, she deserved it, she fell, she deserved it. My curiosity was piqued, but I didn't care to give the crooner the dignity of a glance over my shoulder. After a few more bars of walking, I just slowed down and fell back. Ha! She fell silent immediately. So, she has some shame. I slid my eyes towards her. She was a schoolgirl, perhaps 13 years old, in an ordinary blue school uniform, with a school badge, and instead of a school hat, a tight blue hijab. I walked behind her shoulder, as she had walked behind mine. We were clearly both heading to the station. I had time. I picked up her tuneless tune almost under my breath. She fell. She deserved it. I droned quietly. She fell. She deserved it. She fell. She deserved it. No response. 
I drew closer to her, feeling naughty. That's a pretty little song, I said, as if to nobody. She glanced across at me, eyes low. I didn't look at her. Did you make it up? I said, again, asking the damp air and the grey pavement. It's about you, she said suddenly, eyes flashing spiteful. I got a sudden, clear glimpse of her with her parents, being told off. The being squashed, the sullen resentfulness, the outbursts, the punishment, the whole ungodly cycle of the repression of a bumptious child. I thought it might have been, I said, as if complimented. She walked on. But it's not really true, is it? I said. I think about the relation between truth and art quite a lot. How art uses forms and structures to make it clearer, tidier, more comprehensible. Fiction, unlike reality, has to be believable. Also, how much of someone else's truth are you allowed to use in your writing or your song before you become a thief of their life? Because I didn't fall, did I? I said. I sort of semi-stumbled and then righted myself. But apart from you putting an indignity on me which didn't actually happen, I continued, I'm interested in why you feel that a person would deserve to fall. Why do you think that I deserve to fall? She didn't break her rhythm. And also, I said conversationally, because this was interesting, why the emphasis on she? She fell, she deserved it. Do you feel that women deserve to fall? She still didn't break rhythm, but she looked at me straight. High heels, she said, with considerable scorn. I heard the heels of my boots clack alongside her and saw the argument branch out in two definite separate lines, neither of which I cared to give up in favour of the other. On the one hand, the boots were not high by any standard, so that was factually incorrect. Another branch popped out. What would you classify as high? To you, perhaps, my heels are high, but a great many much higher heels are visible on feet, pages, adverts and screens all around us. My boots are simply and mathematically lower. One inch, perhaps, where you see six inches or seven smoking outside nightclubs and lounging across posters all across town. On the other, original second branch, hand, why would someone deserve to fall for wearing high heels? I had hoped that speaking to her would clarify the situation, but this young girl was becoming more possibilities, not fewer. Initially, I had thought, a little dim, disinhibited, perhaps a person with special needs, or spiteful teenage gal, no respect. Now, I added to the list, victim of extremist religious teaching, re-female attire, even seeing an inch of heel on a winter boot as a crime deserving of the physical and symbolic punishment of a fall. It is serious when a woman falls. Her virtue, dignity, and her honour are lost. She has sought that which is forbidden to her kind, eaten of the fruit, disobeyed God, deviated from societal morality, sold her body for money, for her survival, 
or that of her children. She is a pariah. The once fallen woman must forever fall. She deserved it. They're hardly high at all, I said. They're just about high enough to keep my feet out of a puddle. There were plenty of puddles about. You'll fall in a puddle and get your feet wet and you'll get tuberculosis and cancer and you'll die and you'll deserve it, she cried at me gleefully and nimbly diverted herself into the safety of a fried chicken shop. Hmm. As she went, because I do believe in educating young people, I called after her. You're more likely to die prematurely from eating fast food than from wearing high heels. Footwear doesn't give you cancer. Plus, I remain deeply allergic to a schoolgirl bitch bully. Just because I'm grown up now doesn't mean I don't remember. Plus, I yelled, everybody dies. Westbourne Park was the old Great Western Studios in the disused lost property office where the artists had their studios. My sister's was on the actual disused platform, sheltered from the weather by the building above because she carved such grand, huge pieces of marble you couldn't fit them inside a studio. From the train, you'd see the porter cabin where she made tea and did the paperwork and the big olive trees in pots that sheltered her and her work and the marble torsos and massive angels' heads. A quick glimpse between the shimmering concrete-coloured olive leaves as the train whooshed by. The old studios were knocked down a while ago. You can see the new ones further along the Harrow Road in a new building, like so much of the new London over which we old Londoners sorrow. It is glassy, fancy and far too expensive for the people we were told it was to be for. There was a bomb left at Westbourne Park Station in 1913. They think it was suffragettes. King's Cross Every day for years, shepherds bushed to King's Cross. Pick up a paper, copy of the Metro lately, love-struck column, celebrities I don't care about, couple of wacky news stories, good news feed, hooray, human beings are nice really. An invisible wave to my sister on the platform where she no longer is as we pass, then tuck the paper behind me and clear my mind. Drop my shoulders, hum a little inside my head, moving back towards writing land the imaginary landscapes, the non-existent people, the fields of research, the streams of thought, the slopes to climb, the chasms to investigate. Decant at King's Cross. My, how it's changed over the many, many years. I wasn't there for the Nazi bombs that damaged the Metropolitan Line, as the H&C was still called in 1941. But I remember the fire... 1987. I remember the bombings, 2005. And then again, when some bastard failed to blow up Shepherd's Bush Station in the aftermath. I look at everybody on the train and think how close they might be to tragedy. The sleeping night workers going home. The Muslim boy looking scared that someone's looking funny at his rucksack. The woman with tears so close behind her eyes you can see them. The Albanian buskers. The dogs, the drunks, the person practising their pole dancing. 
every person with a life as full and complex, as rewarding and as terrifying as my own. Hello, human beings of London. I love you, I hate you, get your armpit off my face. Because I am a regular and canny, I have tricks for claiming my preferred seat while others are still learning that they have to give in their coat and actually, sir, that bag is too big and not transparent. I have a transparent bag already. A sturdy, transparent, over-the-shoulder messenger bag that they gave my darling when he was on crutches. He's been dead six years now. The bag is still going strong. I've had it so long, sometimes even members of staff at the library don't know it's a library-issue authorised transparent bag. Off to the cafe, back to the reading room, sit, work, 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 read, 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 write, write, write. For years, this has been my self-inflicted commute. My equivalent of whichever artist it was who every morning walked out of his front door in coat and hat, round the block and back in again to go upstairs to his studio. The psychological journey from relax to work. It is my only office. Evening standard on the way back. The daily tiny prayer for a seat. I have written so many books in here. Seven? Eight? This is where I took the call about his surgery. Home from bloody home. Here I am now. Further east, the chain holds fewer jewels of mine. Only the beautiful little old churches, sitting there still. Christchurch Spitalfields, St Mary Le Beau, St Botolph's, St Margaret Patton's. Timeless and humiliated by giant plate glass and capitalism. All the things this old Londoner hates. The size of the new temples to profiteering. The sheer bloody number and ugliness. The lingering emptiness of the gherkin. Nothing is good enough. Everything must be changed, even the thing that arrived five minutes ago. Everything must be sold and sold again, because the once fallen woman is forever fallen. Because in every change, there's money to be made. No speck of land can exist in this city now unless it is being squeezed for as much money as it can possibly be squeezed for. And guess what? That kills it. My city is dying on me. Who will ever buy her back? I never went east of Kingsway till I was 23, seeking out the old churches for my mum and dad. There was no call. East London was a different country. At St Dunstan's Stepney Green, I saw and promised to remember the gravestone of Betsy Harris, who died suddenly while contemplating the beauties of the moon in her 23rd year. Someone solved religion, by the way. It's simple. Treat it like a penis. Great that you have one. Lovely that you're proud of it. But keep it to yourself. And please don't shove it down the throats of children. And now? OK, look. Tonight, I'll go east instead. I'll just go. See the other end of the city. Her lives and deaths. See how the young girls are. Contemplating the moon. Tripping over flagstones. 
Did Betsy sing in the street or steal from shops? Do spiteful serenading maidens hold up motorways or contemplate the moon? Who carves the names on gravestones? Have we learned kindness yet? I'll check the light bulbs. Try to handle each gem gently. To sing a sweeter song. She deserves it. She Deserves It is a short story of the underground from Louisa Young. Louisa Young's latest novel, You Left Early, is out on the 28th of June 2018 and will be available in audiobook, hardback and ebook. You can find the other stories in this collection from the Borough Press on Audible, Kobo and Apple. <laughs>